Are you guys hiring at McKinney? Yeah, we have two open positions. One uh, open rent tenure track position in technology strategy, and one non tenure track position in entrepreneurship. Fantastic. Where do I apply? <laughs> uh, I. I think that the deadline. We're right here, Luis. We're right here. We can oh, hear no, you. They can hear me. <laughs> oh, no, I'm busted. Welcome back to the seminar, everybody. So uh, our special guest for today, our celebrity talk show guest is Arkady Sokratov. Uh, Arkady uh, serves as associate professor uh, at uh, the Guys College of Business uh, at uh, University of Illinois. Um, he uh, uh, is an alumni of our PhD program here at Cranert, graduating in 2012. Uh, he previously uh, served on the faculty at Wharton before joining uh, University of Illinois. Uh, he is the uh, academic co-director of the Herft uh, Technology and Management Program. Uh, he is an expert in resource redeployment and corporate strategy. I think it would be fair to call Arkady the king of resource redeployment. Uh, you know, anything having to do with resource redeployment uh, if you submit a, a, a paper on that topic, it probably will be reviewed by Arkady, uh, and uh, uh, you know at least uh, at least on the theory side, uh, he is, seems to be uh, dominating the uh, the conversation uh, in the strategy field on on uh, resource redeployment. Uh, he's uh, very well published, uh, has uh, numerous publications in. Uh, SMJ and uh, Org Science. Uh, he's uh, really his research is really starting to get some traction in citations. I noticed uh, that on Google Scholar, uh, he was experiencing 25% year-over-year growth in citations for the last several years. Uh, so everybody, please join me in welcoming back Arkady Sakartov to Cranert. Thank you very much for this generous, kind introduction, Rich. Oh, you're welcome. Okay, so so thank you for joining us. And um, you know, uh, I'm sure you you know from watching some of my videos that I love to start these interviews off by asking people about their path to toward becoming uh, a strategy professor. It is kind of an odd profession. Uh, in the sense that I've never heard a 10-year-old say, mommy, I want to be a strategy professor when I grow up. Um, and, uh, you know, I did notice that uh, you spent uh, 10 years as a uh, finance director for uh, two different companies in Russia before starting uh, on your PhD. So I assume there must be some uh, indirect pathway that you took to our profession. Uh, so tell us a little bit about what, what, what made you want to become a strategy professor in the first place? 
Thank you for this question, Rich, and thank you very much for inviting me uh, to participate in this seminar. This is an absolute pleasure for me to come back to the alma mater. Uh, yeah, my, my path is not uh, a regular path towards, well, we have all unique paths for entering this profession. Uh, I got inspired while being an executive. I had worked as uh, an, uh, a finance director and a board member in a diversified mid-sized group of companies back in Russia for nearly eight years. And before that, I was also involved in executive positions. So I worked on resource allocation, including resource redeployment. I worked on the uh, strategy of uh, participating in multiple businesses, starting new businesses and uh, exiting the previously entered businesses in the diversified group of companies. And I encountered a lot of interesting, intriguing, thought-stimulating questions to which I strived to get an optimal, the best response, and I couldn't. So I felt that I need to know more about this. And I started reading academic literature, starting with books like with classics, Peter Drucker, uh, Henry Minsberg, uh, then gradually coming to the reading of academic articles. And because I was a CFO, a chief financial officer, a natural first step for me in this iteration was to start reading academic literature in finance, mm -hmm. then in economics. Then I started reading uh, management literature and more specifically strategic management literature. And each of these areas appeared uh, exciting to me. I found pieces of answers to my questions in each of them. And I still was in the position of asking more questions, mm. but the comparison of all these sources uh, quite quickly led me to the understanding uh, which area I like most. And it turns out that was strategy because it was an integrated area, the most juicy area offering the richness of complex decisions which I encountered as an executive. So uh, this has become my choice. And uh, uh, I didn't know at that time that I would be admitted to the program, which is actually the first place for research in strategic management for the Kranner School of Management, where the first PhD specialization in strategic management was offered. So I was lucky to be admitted to, uh, to the program here. So you were actually motivated by research questions that came up from your, your work outside of academia. And, and uh, that is true for some people I know in the field, like Russ Koff, you know, had that, uh, that interest in um, human capital valuation for, from, his, uh, from his consulting days. Uh, and so that, that motivated him to want to study that. And so, so you also found that you were not satisfied with the the answers that you were getting about why the, these companies were were allocating and reallocating resources the way they were, I guess. Yeah, I had to. I had to find solutions. Like we we were debating over how to allocate resources more optimally, how to structure our multi-business organization, how to incentivize business units, how to make them coordinate with each other, but at the same time not to interfere with their discretion excessively. And it turns out that all these questions somehow are considered in different areas of strategic management. Uh, this draw my attention. Nice, nice. So, so tell us a little bit more about the, the challenges that you faced actually as a, as a finance director at these companies that, 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 uh, that brought this to your attention. 
Yeah, were there, were there particular problems or puzzles that you were facing that 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 made you, uh, you know, really grabbed your attention on this and motivated you? Yeah, one one puzzle which uh, currently is a ground for my ongoing investigation and which was one of the motivation for going into PhD was how you uh, manage units in a multi-business firm while maintaining their interest to uh, make progress and make profits in these individual units, but at the same time, not at the expense of the overall profits of the company. When there is need for cooperation, for reallocation and sharing of resources. So you motivate units to be excellent in their individual businesses. But in this case, they don't want to cooperate. They become parochial, very concentrated on the individual agendas. So that, that, that is a very interesting and intriguing question uh, for which I think that even as academics, we are still to find good responses. We are working in this direction. I know a lot of publications, great publications in this direction, but there is still a lot of room to dig into this issue. Okay. So you, you, were, you were interested in studying these things um, in, an, in an academic environment. And so you applied to PhD programs. Why do you think you wound up at, at Cranert specifically at Purdue? Yeah, I don't know how it worked on the side of Cranert. I can only conjecture. I think that I can better characterize this selection on my side, which probably will somehow converge to the logic which unfolded here at Cranert. Uh, my first degree was in mechanical engineering, mm -hmm. uh, which kind of influenced my tendency to be a conceptual thinker. So I wanted to do modeling. And I think that uh, I am pretty much econ-oriented as a former chief financial officer. So I kind of embrace the assumption of rationality in its reasonable form. Uh, and uh, the, it turns out that strategy program, strategic management program at Kranert School of Management of Purdue University historically was econ-minded. So in mm -hmm. fact, when I joined the program, I was by default signed to minor in econ. No one asked me whether I won, but I was <laughs> signed to minor in econ, which I did not mind, but it turns out that was a mess. So I think that was uh, probably noticed my, my uh, preferences were expressed in my statement of purpose and were noticed by the recruitment committee for PhD students here at Cranert. And I'm glad that it worked out this way. Yeah, so I, I would imagine that, you know, uh, doctoral programs evaluating a, a statement of purpose like that back then. So this would have been, let me think, this would have been about uh, 2006 or something like that, or 2007. Yeah. Um, you know, looking at a statement of purpose from a, a PhD applicant that said, hey, I really want to do formal modeling in strategy. I, I imagine that at that time, at least, it would have been, um, you know, uh, some some of those admissions committees might have been puzzled by that, or might have been, uh, uh, you know, challenged by that because uh, you know there really just weren't too many people doing that kind of work in strategy at that time. Yeah, I don't think that it helped my marketability. I applied to multiple <laughs> programs probably 10 to 15, I got two invitations. Uh, well, uh, I uh, very quickly understood that uh, Kranert Purdue suits my agenda very well, uh, but uh, 
Well, I was determined. I am very glad that it worked this way because otherwise, if I were admitted, had been admitted to the place where the type of my, my preference, which I had, were not mad, but somehow I ended up in, in the program where what I want to do is not welcome, then it would be probably miserable to me. But I'm very sure. glad that Cranert was very enabling in this regard and helped me in very many ways to pursue what I really wanted to pursue. So tell us a little bit about what your first couple of years were like at Cranert uh, as a as a you know incoming doctoral student for the first few years. Yeah, I thought that I had worked hard when I was a corporate executive, but it turns out that I overestimated the hardness of that previous employment. When I became a first year PhD student, I very quickly got addicted to Starbucks coffee here uh, <laughs> in Memorial Union. And I worked uh, in the first year, literally 14 hours per day, uh, counting on Sunday and Saturday. So I had two small children when we moved to the US. One was two, another was four. And in my first two years uh, in the PhD, I barely saw them not sleeping. When I was leaving Purdue Village, where we lived in the family residence, it was between six uh, to seven a.m. Uh, they were still in bed sleeping, and I was returning between 11 and 12 p.m. Right. And they were already in bed. So that was a very intense study. Uh, uh, but I think that it was, it was very well structured, very rational. I had a very nice sequence of courses, which uh, uh, became really instrumental to the formation of my profile as a researcher. Very intense two years, and then even without coursework, the subsequent two years were intense in other ways. So I didn't have to take courses, but there was the need to produce already some research output to get something under R and R and eventually conditionally accepted. So I, I think that I recall uh, my four years overall, and especially the first two years, as incredibly intense years. So it, it sounds like the field of strategy owes your wife a, 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 a thank you. Absolutely. for, for uh, you know, for supporting you so, uh, so thoroughly so that you could uh, devote that time during those years. Uh, you know, it sounded like you, it sounds like you, you know, maybe saw your kids on the weekends, maybe. Uh, and uh, I see that some of our doctoral students' heads were exploding as you described your, your, your first year experience. And I see Jing is laughing now. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that would be absolutely impossible without support uh, and uh, this collaboration uh, and love from my family. My wife uh, has been always very supportive. That was an investment for her, a big investment of time and effort. She let me uh, do my PhD by focusing on other family issues. That was kind of right. right. So, well, I'll, so I'll, I'll personally give my thanks to her. For, uh, for, for doing that. Um, so, so then uh, after that, you, you moved into kind of the dissertation phase. And it, so it sounds like you had um, a rough idea of what you wanted to study before you even arrived at Cranert in terms of, you know, you knew you wanted to do some formal modeling of, um, of uh, resource redeployment and corporate level strategy issues. Um, and so I think, you know, one thing that, that, that 
that sometimes students will struggle with is they may know, like yourself, they may know a topic that they want to study, and they may even know a method that they want to use to study it, right? Like, like you did, corporate strategy, resource redeployment, formal modeling, right? But, but that's not a research question. And so um, it's, it's often doctoral students find it challenging to get from, you know, I know what my topic is to what is my question. Do you have any, um, any uh, uh, wisdom or guidance or, or experience, maybe experience is the better word, do you have any experience that you can share about what that journey was like for you moving from, from a topic to a specific research question? Yeah, definitely, Rich. This is a great question. Uh, I indeed had some general direction in terms of research allocation and corporate strategy, and I had a strong preference for doing formal modeling, but this was uh, all in uh, the shape which needed to be made sharper and more focused and more rational. I owe a lot to my advisor and uh, dissertation chair, Professor Tim Fulton. He helped me uh, articulate uh, my interests and he helped me find what not only is interesting to me, but relevant to others. Uh, also, that was very helpful that team uh, focuses on real options research. Right. Uh, and my other committee members played a very active role in forming my interests at the stage of working on the proposal and subsequently working on the dissertation itself. Professors Marvin Lieberman, Jeff Rower, and Tom Brush played uh, a big role in, in the formation of my agenda. Uh, and uh, in addition to this, I think that a lot of inspiration and direction was drawn from the seminars which I had with Professor Tom Brush. My very first seminar in the PhD, starting in the first week of being here, was on theories and strategic management, uh, which was very instrumental. I received a map of theories in the area where I want to make theories. And the second seminar with Professor Tom Brush was on corporate strategy. So directly in the area of my interest in my second year in the PhD. And that was very helpful in understanding different directions uh, and uh, ramifications of research in this broad, big area. So all this uh, was shaped and made more focused by uh, my committee members and of course, uh, in the first place by the chair of my dissertation by Tim Holter. Right. So you mentioned your committee members, Tim, Tom, Jeff, and, and Marvin. And uh, I know from, from our other conversations that, uh, that, 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 that your dissertation committee wasn't always happy with you, right? So uh, maybe, maybe tell us a little bit about the, the challenges that you faced in, in, uh, in defining your dissertation with, that, with the committee. Yeah, in a way, I was very inflexible and stubborn in terms of uh, what kind of research I wanted to do. Uh, it, it may have advantages and disadvantages. I wanted to do conceptual modeling. I wanted to do theory development. And more specifically, I wanted to develop theory uh, uh, in a formal way, using formal modeling. Uh, worse than that was that I wanted to be concentrated only on that. So mm -hmm. I wanted to make this my distinctive feature, my specialization. That uh, was uh, received very well in general that I want to do formal modeling and theory 
theory building. But the fact that I want to be always centered on that, and the fact that I was given to have a dissertation without a single empirical chapter was very unusual for our field. Very unusual, yes. And this is not that my advisors uh, didn't wish me well. In fact, they did. They wished me well on the market. They knew that with such a narrow profile, with such a specialization, I would have hard time on the market. And I did. Uh, when I was interviewed, already been in the job market, some people uh, suggested that my profile would probably better fit an econ faculty or even an engineering faculty sure. rather than a management faculty. So, but eventually it turned out well. But this was challenging to kind of to push this agenda and to justify why I want to specialize in this specific direction. Right. I mean, I think many doctoral students in our field are discouraged from doing any theory development at all. You know, uh, they're, they're, they can be told that, you know, theory development is something you should do after you're tenured and, you know, when you have, uh, you know, when you've comfortably uh, proven yourself. Uh, but, um, you know, and, and so, you know, it, it's unusual to see a dissertation with more than, let's say, more than one theory chapter uh, in it. Uh, but like you said, your, your dissertation was all theory, was all formal modeling, no empirics. Uh, and that's very unusual. Um, in fact, I've not really heard of any other cases of that. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm missing some, but, uh, um, and as you said, it was perhaps a challenge for you on the job market, because I think the, the normal expectation in our field is that a, a job talk, at least a rookie job talk, uh, and a rookie job market paper should be an empirical paper. At least that's kind of the conventional wisdom or the, of the norms. Um, so, so tell us a little bit about, I mean, obviously you managed to succeed. So how did you overcome the, the, that challenge? How did you overcome that, you know, kind of conventional wisdom in the field, uh, to, uh, to actually succeed on the job market? Well, there is always an element of luck. I think, uh, at least when we cannot explain something, we appeal to this element. So I guess that uh, somehow by luck, my application was noted at Wharton, the place which is known for theoretical work and the place where the work of uh, theorists, including formal theorists like Nikolai Sigilkov and Dan Leventhal had inspired me and actually had drawn my attention to the area of strategic management. So those were first NK models which uh, made me think, oh, I think that this is very interesting and this is what I can and probably want to do. So when, uh, when I was invited to uh, present my research at Wharton, you know, from the very beginning, starting talking to faculty, I felt myself told. This is not that I got relaxed, uh, like feeling, oh, uh, this is the deal, right? No, this was not the case, absolutely. This was really challenging. But I felt myself very comfortable and I had very interesting stimulating uh, discussions during my campus visit, during my job talk, I still remember the comments which different committee members in the management department mm -hmm. of Portland uh, made. So uh, I think that uh, because I got lucky and was invited to give a talk at Portland, I got a chance to explain myself and to talk to people uh, who uh, 
have made similar uh, uh, efforts, similar commitments in trying to advance a theory by uh, either qualitative uh, means or uh, moreover even uh, by modeling quantitatively. So I think that that would probably not happen without luck, but uh, there was an element of uh, uh, being able to, to talk and to discuss uh, the overlaps in interest. Interesting. So what were the biggest challenges that you faced in executing this dissertation, this unusual dissertation project that was, you know, uh, a set of formal models on, um, on uh, uh, resource allocation in, 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 at corporate level strategy? What, what were the biggest challenges that you faced in, in doing this dissertation? Yeah, this is an interesting question. I think that they came to the field of academic research uninformed and ignorant of specific of doing this business. So when I was entering, I thought, okay, it looks like I can do modeling. And uh, well, uh, this will probably have a positive impact on my career. I think that I overestimated uh, the contribution of the model itself, but underestimated uh, how you sell the model to your colleagues. Yeah. by writing a paper, by presenting that at conferences and by eventually publishing. So I overemphasized the technical background where I was prepared pretty well and I started modeling very soon in the PhD. But writing in English, in a foreign language yeah. and moreover academically writing, this yeah. was absolutely unfamiliar area for me. And this is where uh, Tim Folter was incredibly helpful in channeling me demanding on me and uh, kind of teaching me how to do that efficiently and effectively. Mm -hmm. So the mistake was to underestimate the importance of how you wrap your model and sell your model. Now I know sometimes creating a model may take a day, but writing may take a year, sometimes even more. So it is much more difficult to explain your model, to present, to make this credible and to make people read that, cite that and use that in subsequent research. This is what I continue to learn. I am far from being an expert there. I continue to learn how to do that. I think that I am gradually improving, but there is still a lot to learn. So you, you had your mistake you're saying was to emphasize product over packaging. Exactly. When, when yeah. packaging was really important too. Um, and I, you know, I agree, you know, I think, uh, especially since most people in our field are not formal modelers, packaging it in a way that appeals to uh, an audience, a non-technical audience is important. Um, and uh, it does require a certain um, set of skills. So, so, so those were skills that you had to develop. And, and Tim, as you say, uh, gave you a good um, uh Mentorship, I guess, is the right term, or um, uh, yeah, that is the right term. Yeah, in in how to in how to package uh, formal models. What 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 advice did he give you in terms of you know um, this you know apprenticeship in in packaging formal models? Uh, what what the, what insights did he share? Yeah, I think this is, uh, this is another very suitable word which we use apprenticeship because our first writing was that we were sitting next to each other in his office and writing together. And he would uh, highlight the high demands on the structure, 
the high demands on the language, on not making this cumbersome, making this smooth, logical, uh, efficient in terms of the structure, uh, uh, the very important role which is played by the first section, the introduction, and specifically the first page in the paper. So we, we were just sitting next to each other for days, months, and uh, I was just absorbing uh, as uh, this skill transferred as some kind of tacit knowledge, something which sometimes may be articulated clearly, but in other ways, you can learn that by observing mm -hmm. how the craft goes, how this art is created. And uh, I think that team was very generous in this regard. He shared this with me. And this definitely had a lot of impact on uh, uh, how I try to publish now. Well, let me shift gears and, and maybe ask you some more forward-looking questions. Um, so, uh, you know, as I said at the beginning, you, you're kind of the, the king of, of, of research and especially theory on resource-free deployment. Uh, and uh, so what, what what are, we, what are the most important unanswered questions on the topic of resource redeployment? Uh, what, what do we not know about resource redeployment that we really ought to know? Yeah, I think that the biggest challenge, even though I am a theorist, I will now say something which is probably strange for my profile. The biggest challenge in studying resource redeployment is the difficulty to capture uh, resource redeployment empirically. On the one hand, resource redeployment is the activity which is not required to be reported. For example, you will not find a credible record of resource redeployment in CompuStat segments, even right. though I know many colleagues have tried this. But this is very questionable whether what is captured is resource redeployment or something else similar to it. On the other hand, Resource redeployment is a very intimate strategy, which I guess as a former executive, corporate executives are unwilling to share if not demanded by the law. So they probably don't want to share those intricate strategies with rivals, with other stakeholders. Uh, and uh, there, were, there have been very few studies which reliably diagnosed resource redeployment uh, for this reason. So I think this is very important. And as a former executive, I can tell you that resource redeployment is prevalently used as a strategy. I did use resource redeployment and I was involved in redeployments. Uh, uh, and it is a value creating or sometimes value destructing strategy. So I think that we need to find a better way to capture that either by using qualitative research case methods or maybe by using surveys or finding new data, uh, industry-specific data, which would inform us better than CompuStat can about uh, the use of resource redeployment in terms. And it has relationship to canonical questions. The most important canonical question, which is related to the use of resource redeployment in multi-business firms is why such firms exist in the first place. Why firms diversify into multiple businesses along the uh, geographic dimension and product market dimension. So this is a very important fundamental question. And moreover, from time to time, we hear about the disadvantages of conglomerates, 
failures of corporate acquisitions, failures of diversification, but diversified firms are prevalent, pick the first 10 in Fortune 500, and all these firms will be multi-business in one way or another. So uh, this means that probably we are still not in the position to carefully explain, fully explain why they diversify. If uh, there are some doubts in this regard, research redeployment is one of the important mechanisms which is used in multi-business firms. And again, we don't know how to currently credibly measure that empirically. We probably should. Right. So you mentioned the lack of, of, of good data on resource redeployment within companies. I wonder if I'm just trying to think of, you know, perhaps specific categories of resources where you might have a little bit better data, like, you know, uh, redeployment of human capital, for example, you know, uh, you might be able to track somebody's career trajectory through, uh, through different divisions of a company or something like that. Um, I wonder if you, you have any thoughts about that. Uh, is there, is there um, potential for, you know, uh, strategic human capital redeployment literature? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I tried to do that, uh, probably because I'm not empiricist. I left that at a very embryonic stage, but I used that in one of my projects on the dynamics of corporate diversification. One of the implicit arguments in that publication was is that we can explain the existence of unrelatedly diversified firms, which are named conglomerates, and are blamed as value-destroying firms sometimes. So I took... Uh, uh, some conglomerates, prominent companies, which are unrelatedly diversified, but meanwhile have existed for ages, for centuries, even though they are frequently named dinosaurs uh, uh, and uh, kind of creatures not having much hope to survive. So I took their profiles and I started uh, going through the careers of executives, corporate executives, business unit leaders, and they clearly saw their um, uh, trajectories, uh, moves across different divisions in the company. So those top executives, top managers, they are redeployed. Uh, I know that in a related area, sometimes this is named employee mobility. So mm -hmm. we need to figure out what was the move from the side of the company and what was done voluntarily by those executives. Right. Right. Most of the time, it's a combination of the two, but at least this is one of the possible directions to track uh, the redeployment of human resources across divisions and firms. Right. That is true, right? So you, you do raise a point that maybe my idea is not such a great idea because of the endogeneity problem of, of, of the resources, human resources don't deploy unless they want to redeploy, right? Yeah. You can't re can't just kind of arbitrarily redeploy them. They have to cooperate in the redeployment. This is yeah. just a challenge. It can be it can be worked with. I think that we have a lot of experts in in how to solve the genealogy. So I, I guess that someone will would be able to do that. Right. Yeah, I would think that, for example, maybe data on uh, mutual fund managers, where you know it's very public. Uh, who's the who are the managers of different mutual funds and and uh, fund families can have dozens, if not hundreds of different mutual funds that are in their portfolio where managers could move between. So there may be maybe some possibility to see it there. Um, 
So, uh, so tell us a little bit about, you know, how you moved from uh, the dissertation research that you were doing to your current research. How have your interests changed over time and uh, how, how is that reflected in the, in the research that you're doing today? Yeah, I don't remember, unfortunately, who was that in my PhD program. Apparently, that was mentioned by a few people, not by a single one. But someone recommended me that I write uh, any ideas, however silly they may appear initially, and file them. And I did from the, from the first week in, in the PhD, I started writing down ideas. And you know what? Some of these ideas uh, have already been published. And other ideas are something on which I currently work. Uh, this was one of the sources. Uh, in addition to my managerial career, in addition to my experience as a CFO, I started generating ideas uh, in my PhD. How did I do that? I read a lot of courses as a PhD student and I attended talks and conferences. And whenever I read something new or heard something new, I would think about how this relates to my interests. Uh, back at Purdue, then at Wharton, now at Illinois. So I uh, listen to the talk and think how it relates to my interests. And sometimes somewhere at the intersection, I find an opportunity for future research. Also recently I have uh, become more actively involved in co-authorship. And this is an amazing, new area which reopened to me after I started working with my advisor with Kim Holt and now it reopened to me with new co-authorships and uh, it leads to ideas which I wouldn't be able to generate on my own so this combination of my interest with interests of someone who does a related but not redundant type of research and wow somewhere at the intersection something new emerges uh, and uh, this new becomes interesting to both sides. Sometimes it happens iteratively, like first few trials, maybe something which is not interesting to one party or to another party, and eventually it works. And something emerges which is of interest to both or to three co-authors, and it, it starts developing. So can you give us an example or two of some, of some projects or topics at least that, that emerged from in, in this way? Yeah, for example, a few projects emerged in this way with uh, Jeff Rehr and one project which I currently do on corporate structure as it relates uh, to research redeployment is together with Connie Halford. So with Jeff Rehr, who is known for his research on information economics and mergers and acquisitions, uh, my work on research redeployment, I think, uh, combined pretty well because we started exploring specific informational problems which may be associated with redeployment. Uh, uh, and we uh, recently published a North Science paper which uh, lies exactly at the intersection of our interests. It is dedicated to due diligence and corporate acquisitions. Right. Currently, we work on a new project. We still don't have a paper, but it is very intriguing and promising. I developed a model uh, predicting the use of the option to idle the production and subsequently redeploy resources to a better use. And uh, Jeff introduced me to Toby Lee, who has the data on the idling and redeployment of rigs in the oil drilling industry in Texas. And uh, we quickly run some preliminary estimations, and it turns out that the results of these estimations are consistent with the results of the formally developed model. So this is 
the kind of a collaboration where I am less experienced and less excited to do empirical work on my own, but there is uh, a partner who has the data and is an expert in empirical estimations and all of a sudden they match to each other, these results, empirical results match to the theoretical predictions. With uh, Conic help, but we work on the project on the use of different corporate structures to facilitate research redeployment. And of course, I, I have been uh, very much influenced by your article published in 2004 in co-authorship with Casey Eisenhardt on the intertemporal economies of scope, which uh, are related or even are the same as research redeployment. So, uh, and part of this article is concerned with the structure used by Omni Corporation described in this article. So when I started working, we started uh, discussing this project with Connie and we very soon understood the substantial overlaps in our interests. Now we, we work on this project and Connie helps me a lot in terms of how to make this formal modeling more understandable and wrappable to the broader audience so that it may have a bigger impact on people who do not necessarily want to pursue modeling by themselves or to invest a lot of effort in understanding the subtleties of the model how to describe this in an understandable way. So this is another kind of synergy which emerges and helps develop the project. It's great how those things work out sometimes, you know? Some, it's, it's so easy to get kind of discouraged when, when, when projects don't work. Uh, we have to kind of enjoy the successes when they do occur. Um, so I know that you've been very involved in doctoral education uh, you know, mentoring students and, uh, and also teaching doctoral seminars. Um, so what's, what is the most important piece of advice that you give to your own doctoral students? Yeah, I think that I have, I have uh, always wanted uh, to uh, work with doctoral students. And uh, I, I um, think that I was very pleased when at Illinois I was asked to do a separate prep, uh, a PhD seminar for doctoral students on uh, corporate strategy. And more specifically, I was allowed to uh, make this focused on formal modeling in corporate strategy. Mm -hmm. So I think that uh, with, with regard to this specific seminar, I think that I am trying to uh, let students know that formal modeling is not rocket science. It's complicated, uh, tedious, but it's doable. And uh, it doesn't require a very sophisticated background. At least some types of modeling are much easier than people perceive them when they see Greeks on the paper. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of paper and pencil exercises uh, where students uh, do discoveries by themselves after initial preparation about how to work through the model after training they do that and they make the discoveries but uh, speaking more generally about uh, advice to doctoral students i think that this is probably also what i heard why while being a phd student i think that this is very important to be curious and inspired and initially, initially search very broad for topics which are interesting to you, but meanwhile, which are relevant to others. After you go through this stage, or maybe somewhere in the process of doing this stage, you have to start being efficient. Uh, 
after you select a few topics uh, which are interesting to you and relevant to other, narrow this set even down to uh, work on a very few topics and work hard every day and make progress every day on these on these topics. And third, you know, th this is an interesting uh, occupation where you have to be simultaneously at once flexible and persistent. Mm -hmm. So in the course of work, each PhD student, junior faculty will receive numerous, very valuable feedback from his or her dear colleagues. This is natural and very important to make most use of this feedback. But this is also important not to lose the direction for what you intend to do. So this is important to be flexible to accommodate recommendations and feedback, but also to stay your intended course and not to change your research agenda every time when you see, oh, this is a very important advice. I have to now to reconsider the topic of my dissertation. So probably decide carefully, make the commitment, and then think how you incorporate what you're advised to do instead of changing the agenda uh, overall. So spoken like a true student of real options, right? So, so, yeah. uh, so uh, have flexibility in how, but not in what, I guess, right? Be, be committed to what you're doing, but, but be uh, flexible about how you do it, it sounds right. like. Okay, well, that's all the questions I've got. So thank you again for, uh, for being a good sport and uh, sitting for our uh, celebrity talk show ritual. So everybody, please join me in thanking Arkady. Thank you very much. This is a great pleasure for me to come and to talk to you all. It's, it's wonderful for us too. <laughs>